Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special Ossert podcast brought to you by Microsoft Forefront. I'm Patrick Gray. The following is a recording of a presentation by Zscaler's Michael Sutton. The topic is security risks in the next generation of offline web applications. Basically, the talk looks at persistent client-side storage, as brought on by stuff like Google Gears and the database storage functionality included in HTML5. Sutton used to work for iDefense Labs, but these days works for Zscaler, or Zscaler, I guess, if you're Australian. It's a company that offers in-the-cloud web filtering. Uh, think of it as message labs for the web. I hope you enjoy his presentation. Uh, so what I want to talk about today is client-side storage, because that is the necessary piece to make this happen. I'll, I'll start off talking about a couple of uh, technologies that you're probably already fairly familiar with, but they, they are used today for offline storage, and then I'll get into some future technologies that are going to make this uh, possible. Uh, John largely covered my background, so I won't go into great detail. Uh, I'm the Vice President of Security Research at Zscaler. Uh, and, and we are a uh, company that does uh, security as a service. So this is what I want to discuss. I want to start off with a couple of technologies that you're probably fairly familiar with. Um, HTTP cookies, um, been around for a long time. That is really kind of the first instance of client-side storage. It's been around for a long time. Uh, it's, I'm seeing it kind of used in ways that it wasn't intended for, and so I want to spend a little bit of time just talking about one particular new vulnerability that I've seen related to cookies that deals with client-side storage. Uh, then I want to talk about Flash local shared objects. The more common name for that is Flash cookies. Uh, that is, is definitely less understood by, I think, end users. Um, fairly heavily used by web developers because... Uh, people flush their cookies. They don't understand what flash cookies are, so it's a, a much more permanent form of storage. And just some interesting observations about that. But then I want to spend time down here. These are really the technologies of the future. Gears is a uh, interim measure. Google was a little uh, anxious and not willing to wait for HTML5, so they produced their own technology, Gears, and that will kind of slowly fade away as HTML5 starts to take hold. And that's something that's already occurring today, especially in the mobile world. So what has been the evolution of web applications? I mean, how have we gotten to this point today? Well, when it comes to security, I, I think of that first phase, that Web 1.0 phase, not very exciting from a security perspective. Web applications were largely electronic brochures, just information about your company, but from a security perspective, not that interesting. In order for uh, an attacker to attack an application, they always need an input vector. And so when web applications were largely static, there really weren't many input vectors. You know, the URL itself, but not that exciting from an attacker's perspective. So we didn't see a lot of interesting attack vectors at that time. Then we moved into this new phase, and I actually really hate the term Web 2.0, I don't think there's been a term that abused since cloud. Cloud has now taken over as the abused term in uh, technology. But you know, what does Web 2.0 mean? It depends what you, who you ask. Uh, but for me, what it means is that was the, the moment when web applications became much more dynamic. Uh, we didn't have static pages. And it was driven by a lot of user-supplied content. And so that is the, the trigger that made web applications much more interesting from a security perspective. Because now, there's all these input vectors. And if that input isn't appropriately validated, well, that is what enables um, the web applications to be attacked. And we've certainly seen no shortage of attacks on web applications. Now I feel we're moving into a new phase altogether. And I'll call it, for the lack of a better term, Web 3.0. And this is the phase where we blur the line between what is a desktop and what is a web application. Because there really isn't going to be a difference because uh, they will be web applications, but they will be offline accessible. So you hop on the airplane, you don't have your internet connectivity, you will still be able to utilize that application, and when you get back online, it will resynchronize. And there, it's already a technology that's being used today. Uh, so web browser storage. Uh, but so these are the four technologies. So HTTP cookies, everyone I think is very familiar with that. Um, it's amazing to me when I think of 1994 was when Netscape actually first introduced those. So, you know, 16 years ago. 
makes me feel old because I actually remember the world when there weren't, uh, weren't such things. Flash local shared objects, as mentioned. Those flash cookies is the more common term. Um, actually been around for a number of years. Came out in uh, Flash 6.0. Uh, not very well understood by the general public. There, there's sort of, the general public always has this uh, negative perception of, of cookies. Uh, and so they, they flush them. Nobody, I think, from an end user perspective, really understands what a flash cookie is. But we'll, we'll discuss it. I just wanted to look at software from a different perspective, from an attacker's perspective. So desktop software, it's largely offline. I mean, all desktop software today has an online capability. You get your help files, your patches, things like that. But it's designed to work when that, when that uh, laptop is offline. It's built on top of the operating system, and it runs on the client side. Contrast that with web applications. They are built to be online. You must be online in order to use a web application. It's not built on top of the operating system. It's built on top of the web browser. And it's delivered from the server side. So that's a big difference. The logic for a desktop application sits on the client side. Logic for a uh, web application sits on the server side. From an attacker's perspective, that really changes the way that these two different uh, platforms are attacked. Desktop software, the attacks tend to be platform-specific. You know, I am attacking let's say, Microsoft Word 2007, um, and it's running on a particular version of Windows. Whereas a web application, it's platform independent. If I'm attacking it, it doesn't matter to me what, what's r running. I don't care if it's an Apache server, typically, things like that. Um, desktop software, the attack vector is typically an executable or a file. It's something that actually gets delivered to the desktop and is either uh, run directly or interpreted. Web application attacks, it's usually a script-based. I'm injecting something into this web application. Think of SQL injection. I'm injecting a little snippet of SQL code that's not being properly validated. And again, we have that difference between where it's running the client and the server side. So from a protection perspective, um, how, do I, how do I fix desktop software? Well, I get a patch from the vendor. Web applications, you as an end user are at a disadvantage. You're not running that application, so you cannot patch it. The, the uh, webmaster has to do that. They, they will have to do typically a custom code fix because it's generally their own code. It's not just a canned application. Or they'll run things like web, web application firewalls. Let's look at the, now what's going to change when we move to offline web applications. So these are really a hybrid. They sit in the middle. They're both offline and online because, again, it is a web application, but when I hop on that airplane, I can still utilize this web application. It is running within my browser. The logic can be on the server side or the client side. When I'm online, I'm actually accessing that, that web server, say Gmail. But when I'm offline, there is an entirely uh, mirrored environment sitting within my browser. So the logic is entirely running on the client side. Again, it is platform independent, much like a web application. The attacks, as we will see, are script-based, similar to web apps. Um, and, and, but we're now able to attack the client side as well because the logic actually gets replicated on the client side. So how do we protect against these? Well, it largely remains to be seen because this is a, a new era. Uh, it's kind of a, a, a halfway measure between a web or a desktop application and a web application. So we'll talk about cookies and, and flash objects first. Those are uh, the historical things that we've had. And then we'll get into gears and HTML5. So let's start off. So with cookies, again, been around for a long time. Uh, I, people definitely have a misconception of what cookies are. People think that they're designed to track individuals. Uh, that's not the case. I mean, a cookie is, is a tracking mechanism, but it is designed to track a combination of a, a user, a browser, and a computer. I mean, if you switch between browsers on your laptop, you'll have a different set of cookies. Um, there is uh, no real uh, uh, set rule on how much uh, a cookie can hold, but the RFC talks about 4,096 4, bytes, 4K. Um, and typically, you can have at least 20 cookies per domain. So I don't want to spend a lot of time on cookies. I think they're really well understood. But I've recently seen a lot of sites that have a vulnerability that I refer to as client-side cross-site scripting. Um, 
I'm assuming that most people know what cross-site scripting is, but just a quick overview. Uh, definitely the most prevalent web application vulnerability that we see today. Uh, very easy to introduce into a web application. Happens simply because you're not validating user-supplied input, and then you're allowing an end user to actually inject code into the page. So you accept user-supplied input, you use that in a dynamically generated page, and you allow an attacker to inject typically JavaScript into the page. So you're really allowing them to reprogram that page. Um, we've always had persistent cross-site scripting, meaning that the JavaScript which is injected is stored. Uh, so think of a web forum. You know, I go in and I can type my comments and somebody else can type their comments, but the server's not appropriately validating it, so I'm able to inject um, some JavaScript into the page, and then the next guy who comes to view it is affected by that JavaScript. But in that scenario, the persistency exists on the server side. So everything is stored probably in a back-end database. Here we have a concept of cl persistent client-side cross-site scripting. And here's a real-world scenario of where I've seen this. Um, so this is the Sony search site. I first spotted this about a year ago, told them about it. They did nothing. Fortunately, in the last couple months, they actually did redesign the site, and so this is now fixed. Um, I typically see this on pages that have um, search functionality with a search history associated with it. So you can see when I'm typed, there, it says your recent searches. So as you start to search for things, so I search for the word Michael, and it shows up, Sutton, my last name. And so obviously there is some degree of persistency. This is being stored somewhere. So where is it being kept? Um, you know, it could be in a back-end database, it could be passed between pages in hidden form fields, it could be just about anywhere. But I asked myself when I saw this, I wonder if they're storing that just within a cookie of the page. And sure enough, that's exactly where it is. So you can see right here, um, th these are cookies for the page, that's where they're storing it. Nothing necessarily wrong with that, I mean, it's not really what cookies were designed for, but hey, cookies are just client-side storage, no reason you shouldn't do that. But then the question becomes, what if they're not properly validating that input? Then I could inject things that aren't text-based. I could inject some actual code. And sure enough, they weren't doing it, so you could inject something like JavaScript. So why does that matter? I mean, why do we even care about that? It's interesting because now this opens up the door for, um, for cross-site scripting attacks that are user-specific. Normally when I do a persistent cross-site scripting attack, I'm injecting JavaScript, which is stored on the server side, so that anybody who viewed that same page would be impacted equally. Here, I can actually do an attack that has persistency, so it doesn't go away, but it's user-specific, because I'm injecting that JavaScript into a cookie for an individual user. Um, so that opens the doors for some interesting attacks. Think of something like cross-site request forgery. Uh, which is an attack whereby you're, you're getting a user to perform an action that they didn't intend to, maybe making them make a banking transaction, something like that. Um, there's always timing issues, like I need to know when the person is logged in. You know, here's a mechanism where I can actually um, combine those things and actually have some knowledge of when the person's doing something, because I could inject something into their cookie so that whenever they come back to the page, it would alert me that, hey, this guy's logged back in. Uh, just an interesting thing. And, and when I looked around for this, I actually saw it in a lot of different places. Um, I wanted to do the SMS stuff, so let's give this a try. First question, which of the following technologies have you used? So if you can SMS the number, your response to, to this number. So Adobe Flash, uh, I'm expecting that most people will have... Uh, will have done, will have used Flash. I think just about everybody has it, thanks to uh, YouTube. Um, and then iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch. Why is that important? As we'll see, HTML, it's actually the platform that really is, uh, in my opinion, driving the most HTML5 traffic um, in terms of client-side storage. And then Google Gears. So flash local shared objects. This is the uh, flash cookies is the other term for it, more common term. So what is this? Well, it first emerged back in Flash Player 6.0. Um, it actually allows web application developers a very powerful means of client-side storage. HEP cookies, 
mistrusted by a lot of people, so they tend to fl- flush their browsers a lot. They don't want people to know where they've been surfing. Um, sometimes they'll even have plugins for the browser that actually prevent cookies from being uh, written, although it definitely affects your browsing. Uh, so Flash cookies, introduced way back in 2002, this is a much more powerful version of a cookie because uh, it allows, by default, storage of up to 100 kilobytes by any web page that you go to. The only requirement is that you have to have Flash installed. So any web browser or any website that you go to can actually store data within a Flash cookie. And it's actually pretty hard to get rid of your Flash cookies because it is not tied in any way to the browser. So when you flush your HTTP cookies, it has nothing to do with your Flash cookies. And it actually wasn't until Flash 8.0, two versions later, that Flash even, that Adobe even provided any kind of mechanism for the end user to manage those cookies in any way. Uh, so for those that aren't aware, you can manage Flash. There are settings. It's not done in a typical way. It's not like a, an application that runs on your desktop. You actually would go to um, uh, the Adobe site, and it actually runs a Flash application, and this is your settings manager. And within that, you have the ability to manage your cookies. Uh, but, so by default, it's turned to on to allow any site to write cookies. And if you actually go in there and take a look at it, um, you're going to see cookies from all over the place. You know, I just did a quick check, and uh, my laptop at the time that I'd written this slide had cookies from 102 domains. Um, and you can, you can use them to write anything uh, as long as it's within that 100K limit. As far as security mechanisms, Adobe's done a reasonable job. They really approach it in the same way that HTTP cookies do, whereby you have the same origin policy so that... Uh, one domain writes a cookie, another domain does not have access to that cookie. And they even go one step further where they allow you to um, add a path to it. So I could have cookies written from zscaler.com slash Michael, and those, those cookies could not be reached by zscaler.com slash John because I, I chose to set it up that way. So they've done a reasonable job with that. Um, they're stored in predictable locations, so if you wanted to get these, they're not hard to find. An interesting difference here is that they're not browser-specific. Your HTTP cookies, if you're running multiple browsers, are all stored in a different location. With Flash cookies, they're all stored at, at the OS level. So if I had multiple browsers, they can all actually reach the same, same sets of cookies. What are they physically? Um, binary files, they have a .sol extension if you went into, and for those of you who are interested in looking at this afterwards, no need to necessarily write down all the paths and things. I mean, I gave permission for my slides to be reprinted, so I think you'll have access to, to all this stuff. Um, but they're binary files, they just have a .sol extension, and they're typically used to store text data, so you can, physic- even though it's a binary file, you can physically open it within a text editor and look at it and really see pretty much what's there. There are, however, actual applications designed to read them. Uh, FD3, SOL Reader would be examples of that. Uh, from an end user's perspective, if you're an end user and you want to control this stuff, you can do so either through that Flash Settings Manager, which again is a web-based console to manage your Flash, or um, there are various browser add-ons that will actually allow you to flush these cookies. So could I steal somebody's Flash cookie? Um, it's, it's relatively easy to steal an HTTP cookie. If there's a cross-site scripting vulnerability in a web application, you can typically steal the cookies from that domain uh, because I can just inject JavaScript that will grab the cookie and then send it to the attacker. I couldn't use a cross-site scripting vulnerability to steal Flash cookies. So from that perspective, they're a little bit more secure. Because Flash cookies are not driven by JavaScript, they're driven by Flash. I could, there would, however, be a way to steal them, and you know, I, I'll show you what, what you would need to do to do that. If I had the ability to upload my own Flash file to a website, so if I could upload an SWF file, then I could steal the Flash cookies. Um, and it, that's not uh, an inconceivable idea because especially with all of the sharing, the websites allow a lot of sharing. And hey, what does an SWF file allow you to do? Well, it allows you to play video. So there's a lot of sites that will actually allow you to upload Swift files. Um, and so if I were able to upload that, 
and store it on a site, then I could steal the flash cookies of anybody that went and visited and viewed that SWF file. What I would have to do is create uh, a Swift file. Uh, ActionScript is the, uh, the language that Flash uses to, to write their files. So here is just a really simple Swift file that I created to just show how I would steal data from somebody's Flash cookie if I could compile this and upload it. Um, I wouldn't need to know very much. I would need to know the name of the cookie that I was stealing from. But anything client-side, that's not hard to do. Because if I visit the site, that cookie will get written in my browser. So I don't have to guess that. I know that information. I would need to know the variable names that I'm stealing from. In this case, user data first name and last name. But again, I don't have to guess that, because it's already given to me if I, if I go to that site. So there's just an example of how I would of actually stealing content from a Flash cookie. So what are some of the pros and cons of that? Well, we increase the complexity of cookie stealing because I can't just use cross-site scripting to steal a cookie. Um, I like the sandboxing that they use, the fact that they have that same origin policy and it's path-based. Um, but what are some of the downsides of flash cookies? And I'm starting to see this in the media. That There was actually a Wired article not too long ago that talked about flash cookies. And it was interesting to me that like, people really had no idea that these things existed. Um, and they're used by a lot of websites. So from a, there, there's a lot more storage. Um, you know, when I looked around, I, I wanted to see what these were being used for. And for the most part, I found that they're being used for the same things as traditional cookies, just tracking users so you can have customization. I did find some really interesting things. Uh, I found uh, some Flash gaming sites where they would actually store Easter eggs within the, uh, within the Flash files. Uh, I found some negative security issues whereby uh, username and password would be stored within the Flash files. So if you just grabbed it off of somebody's uh, laptop, you could actually get into a site. So definitely not always understood and sometimes abused. From an end user perspective, difficult to delete. And there is no expiration date by default on any of these. Next SMS question, what's your primary browser? And I ask this because of the fact that um, Depending upon what you're using, I want to talk about HTML5. Uh, the browsers have already started to adopt HTML5. HTML5 is a, a big, huge spec that's been under development for many years, and it's still not done. And the browsers are not, however, waiting for it. Um, it's been adopted at different levels. So fire off which one you're using. So let's talk about Google Gears. And I have Google in parentheses there because that name has been dropped. It was developed by Google. They ended up dropping the, the, gears, the Google name from it to make it more of a community project. So it was first launched um, in 2007, so about three years ago now. And after the first anniversary, Google actually dropped uh, Google from the name. So now it's just known as Gears. Now, it's, as I mentioned at the beginning, it's really an interim measure. It replicates the offline storage capabilities of HTML5. But because HTML5 uh, is not yet fully adopted, you'll see a little later on which browsers have adopted the offline storage components of it. Uh, and so Google just wasn't willing to wait. Because think, in Google's view, they want the world to be driven by web applications. They don't want any desktop software. Um, but you know, they, the limitation of web applications today is that you have to be online. So the idea of Google Gears is that it allows you to build web applications that have offline capabilities. There's really three primary components to it. Local server. This is an actual web server that runs locally on your machine. Uh, the database is a full relational database that uses SQLite. And then the worker pool, uh, which is just uh, allows multiple threads of JavaScript to be run. Because all of this, Gears and HTML5, are very intensely driven by JavaScript. JavaScript is playing a much bigger role in the future web applications. So the idea with Gears is that if a website has implemented Gears, uh, when you go to it and you're online, the web application works the same way it always would. Do you have something to throw up on the screen? Sorry, I saw a hand go up there. All right, so here's uh, BC. One and one. So half of the room, all one of you, is Firefox, and half of the room is Safari. Come on. Who's using Internet Explorer? There we go. Show of hands. I actually, uh, thanks. I actually, um, I just released our quarterly report today. 
Um, if you're interested, just go to our website, not to do a company plug, but I think it's a really cool report, zscaler.com, you can get it from. Uh, because we're in a really unique position to be able to see what corporations are doing. So we have this cloud, and all of our corporate traffic flows through us. And I keep hearing about how uh, Internet Explorer has dropped below 60%. And, and globally, if you look at all users on the web, that's very true. We really only see corporate traffic, though. So what's interesting to me is we're still seeing 75% of the traffic is Internet Explorer-related. Even more importantly to me, 25% of the traffic that we see is Internet Explorer 6. That is a scary statistic. That, Internet Explorer 6 is a nine-year-old web browser. Uh, in my opinion, individuals are much better at adopting new browser technology than corporations. Corporations are holding on to older browsers because they're worried about compatibility issues, and it's really scary from a security perspective. Because if you look at something like IE6, it is lacking many security features that exist in IE8. So if you're in charge of security at your corpor corporation and you're still using IE6, please get off of IE6. Um, the time has come. The time came about five years ago, actually. Uh, so moving on to Gears. So if you go to a website that has... So, so Gears is a browser plugin. You uh, go to Google, you install it. Um, it's not all browsers are supported. So the idea then is if you go to a website that has enabled Gears, um, when you first go there, you'll get a little pop-up like this, and it'll say, hey, this website is Gears enabled. It wants to store data on your computer. Um, and I, I like the fact that they do that because most users I don't think would have any idea. And I think it's important to know that, hey, this, this application is actually going to store data. A lot of Google applications um, are Gears, ena gears enabled, uh, like Gmail, for example. So your Gmail is stored locally. Um, and I think you have a right to know that. So anyway, you get a little pop-up that tells you that. Where is it stored? Well, now you have a full relational database running on your desktop. Yeah, SQLite is the implementation. Uh, just a very stripped-down version of SQL. Um, basically, every database that gets created is just one single flat file. And there you can just see a snapshot of that. So that little 6K file is the actual um, database that is being stored on your machine. This, like HTTP cookies, the storage locations are both um, OS and browser dependent. So um, it's not stored in one location regardless of browser. It is different locations depending upon the browser. So when I started looking at Gears, um, I was interested to know that... So the idea is data is now stored on the client side. You have a relational database on the client side. Now, for years and years and years, we've always had the issue of uh, server-side SQL injection. Uh, and so SQL injection, for those who may not be familiar, very prevalent vulnerability. I'd say about a quarter of web applications have uh, SQL injection vulnerabilities. The idea being, once again, site's not appropriately validating user-supplied input, so I can actually inject SQL code that will allow me to interact with the back-end database. I can read from it. I can write to it. So, and it's always been that way. But databases have always been on the server side. Well, now we have a database on the client side. So can I conduct SQL injection on the client side as well? The answer is yes, and I'll, and I'll explain why. And in my opinion, it's actually a much easier attack to do. So this is something that I think we're going to start to see a lot more of. The example I'll walk through right now relates to Gears, and Gears will fade away, and HTML5 will start to take over. But their implementations of database storage are effectively the same. Um, it, it, they, HTML5 uses SQLite on the back end. They're both driven by JavaScript APIs. So same attack will apply to both. So what, how can we do this? Well, as I'll show, um, I think that Gears and HTML5 themselves are actually fairly secure technologies. The problem here is that they're very heavily dependent on JavaScript. So if we have a cross-site scripting vulnerability which is very prevalent. You know, depending upon whose stats you look at, anywhere from 60 to 75% of domains have cross-site scripting vulnerabilities somewhere on the site. And if I can inject JavaScript into the page using a cross-site scripting vulnerability, now I can conduct client-side SQL injection. Uh, so this is something that I think we're going to see an awful lot of in the coming years.
So when I, when I was doing this, I wanted to come up with a real-world example. I didn't want people to think this was a theoretical future thing. So I wanted to actually find a site where I could conduct the attack. So I needed to do two things. One, I needed to find a site that was using, in this case, gears. Um, and there's not a huge number of sites out there, but more than enough. Um, and then I needed to find one of those sites with cross-site uh, cross scripting vulnerability. So even before I started this, I knew that this was going to be achievable because there are so many sites that have cross-site scripting vulnerabilities. I knew without a doubt that at least one of these would have a site. And honestly, I'd say it took me about an hour to come up with this example. So, but I want to give a big thank you to the company that I did find this on, Paymo.biz. They're an online time tracking system. Um, and so I wouldn't talk about this if they hadn't already fixed it. They did, but they were also great about it. I mean, you know... Anybody who's ever reported a security vulnerability to a company, you know it can be a dicey proposition. Sometimes you get legal threats and all kinds of stuff. Um, in this case, I emailed them, told them what was up. They responded right away. Uh, they were very grateful. They fixed it, and they gave me a free year of service. So, hey, got to appreciate that. So, I found a cross-site scripting vulnerability in the paymo.biz website. This is the location where it was, not totally important, but that's where I needed to inject, or that's where I had an ability to inject code into the page. So this is what I had to inject, and it might look a little bit complicated, but let me break it down. It's really easy to do this. So the first thing that I needed to do, just specific to this, was close off that paragraph tag, just because that's where I was injecting. Secondly, so Gears is, is a JavaScript API, you know, so you're, you're making all these calls, JavaScript calls, and that's how you're writing data to a database or you're reading data. So I just need to, to tell the browser where these APIs are, and I just point it to uh, where it's actually hosted at on the Google site. I then need to open the database. So this is a site that, you know, you've already been there, so it's already created this back-end database. Now, normally with SQL injection, you would have to guess all of this information because all that data is stored on the server side. In this case, I don't have to guess anything because it's all client side. All I have to do is go visit the site myself. It creates the database. I look at it. I know the name of it. No big deal. And then all I have to do is inject the SQL statement that I want to do. Again, I need to know the names of the, the database or if, I, if it was important, the tables, or this is the table name, but I might also need to know uh, column names and things. I don't have to guess any of that, because it's all client-side. So all of this code here, I injected it into where the, uh, the vulnerability was on the page, and then sure enough, I was able to retrieve whatever I wanted to from this database. So client-side SQL injection is, is very real. And as sites start to adopt these technologies, we're going to see these types of attacks. Um, so as with most things, it doesn't... So Google did a good job of creating a secure technology. Like, this is how you're supposed to write a SQL query. And you basically, the user-supplied data goes in where that question mark is. And that way, Gears takes care of making sure it's escaped properly so that you're not going to have a traditional SQL injection attack. But this is all driven by, cross by JavaScript. So if I can inject Java into a page, all of the work that Google did is meaningless. It's you know typical scenario. You can have the most secure technology, but if you build it on an insecure platform, security's out the window. So I wanted to compare traditional SQL injection to client-side SQL injection. Um, in traditional SQL injection, I have to do a lot of work to figure out the database structure. I have to do a lot of brute force attacks to figure out the table names, data types, column names, things like that. Client-side SQL injection, I don't have to do any of that because it's all client-side. I just go visit the website, database gets created, I have full access to it. Traditional SQL injection, attacks are online. I'm attacking a server. Conceivably, we could have offline attacks with client-side SQL injection because, again, there is a local version of that application. If you're offline, it would run locally. So I could conceive a scenario where I send my victim an email that has a, a malicious link in it. They're offline at the time they read that. They click on the link. So it goes to their offline version of this application and does the damage. Maybe it overwrites data. Maybe it steals data. And then when they get back online, it sends it to me. We could actually have offline attacks. And in traditional SQL injection, it's the SQL statement itself which must actually be vulnerable. 
In client-side SQL injection, you can have a perfectly secure SQL statement, but it's on a web page that has a cross-site scripting vulnerability, so I can conduct this attack. So in my opinion, the champ is client-side SQL injection. From an attacker's perspective, way easier to do. Um, when I started this research, somebody said to me, well, isn't this the, it should say, I don't know what happened on that uh, title, but the, the question that I was asked was, uh, well, why is this any different than cookie theft? Like, if there's a cross-site scripting vulnerability in the page, I could steal the person's cookie, then I could log into the site as them, and then I could just get all this information anyway. So why is this really different? So here's my answer to that. So Stealing somebody's cookie doesn't guarantee that you can get into that site because uh, there may not, they may use other me mechanisms for authentication. So the cookie may not actually even be involved in the first place. There could also be additional access controls, uh, like you're restricted from getting onto that site based on the source IP address. Uh, the session credentials could have expired. You know, hopefully, if they're using cookie-based authentication, it's not persistent. They're actually expiring it after a period of time. But most importantly, when, when these web applications are designed that have offline capabilities, the off, this data stored offline does not have to be the same as the data stored offline. It can actually be totally different. So the verdict is no, these are not the same things. This is definitely a new attack. What sites are using Gears? There's not a ton because Gears will be going away. It's really an interim measure. Um, and within one year's time, I think that all... Uh, browsers will have HTML5 uh, client-side database storage capabilities. So in my prediction, within 12 months, you're going to see all these sites switch to HTML5, and then we're going to see a surge in websites that have offline capabilities. Um, and, and this is just a recent article where Google has said, yeah, over time we're going to phase out gears. We're just kind of waiting for HTML5. So they never intended to compete with HTML5. They just didn't want to wait for it. Pros and cons of Gears. Well, I like the fact that it requires an explicit user acceptance um, to let you know that it's going to store things offline. And I think G Google did a really good job of building a secure technology. Unfortunately, if, the, if it's implemented on a site that is completely insecure and has all these cross-site scripting vulnerabilities, it doesn't matter. You're going to be able to attack this site. So let's move on to HTML5. HTML5, big specification, tons of stuff in there. Uh, been underway for years, still not completed. Uh, but now we're starting to see browsers adopt certain portions of it, uh, where you've probably heard most about HTML5. Relates to video. Of course, there's a big battle between Adobe and Apple going on right now. Adobe ref or Apple refused to implement Flash on the iPad and the iPhone. Um, because they feel that it's a security risk. Um, and so they're actually using HTML5 to display video. Like that's, you know, you, you see these sites that saying that they're now iPad ready. Well, they're just using HTML5 to display their video. But that's only one very small part of HTML5. HTML5 has tons of stuff. The piece that I'm interested in is the structured client-side storage. So this is really the same thing as Google Gears. We will now be able to take web applications offline. But the big difference here is this is not a browser plugin. You know, once uh, browsers become HTML5 compliant, and I feel that we're about 12 months away from that across the board, um, we, we will then have offline storage capabilities in all browsers. You don't have to have any kind of plugin or anything like that. So the spec actually began back in 2004, um, first kind of reared its head with a, with a public draft in 2008, still not done. It's really just a ton of APIs. It's very JavaScript intensive. JavaScript drives uh, HTML5. You know, and, and I come back to cross-site scripting because now cross-site scripting is going to be a much more powerful vulnerability because everything is driven by JavaScript. I mean, I remember the days when we would say to people, hey, if you want to be protected, just shut off JavaScript. Well, good luck surfing the web without JavaScript. Uh, you might as well go back to the Lynx browser and just start doing text uh, because you're not going to be able to shut off JavaScript. So on the client-side storage piece, there, there's three components, session storage and local storage. Those are actually very similar to HTTP cookies. It's the, this last piece, database storage, that I'm interested in because that is really um, gears all over again. 
SQLite database on the back end, uh, ability to take a, browser or a web application offline. So what's actually in HTML5? There's a bunch of structural elements. Uh, today, if you're a web developer, you probably use div tags to kind of slice and dice things. Now that's going to be much more formalized, like you're going to actually have specific things that take the place of div tags. Uh, but the big part of it is tons and tons of APIs. There's all kinds of cool stuff. This, HTML5 is going to enable us to really blur that line between the desktop and the web application. So we have things that browsers were never able to do. Things like uh, drag and drop capabilities. Uh, all the video and audio. Now I don't need a plugin. I don't need Flash. I mean, it'll just, like, literally you have a video tag. You point to the video. It will play right within the browser. And that, that's how the iPad, the iPhone do that today. Um, and and the, uh, a lot of people talk about HTML5 as a Flash killer. I don't see it that way. I mean, Flash still will play a role, but many portions of, of what Flash is used for today really won't be necessary, like playing video. But I've even seen some really dramatic examples. Um, like I recently saw a, a port of the game Doom. Everyone's familiar with Doom. Um, that was actually totally built in HTML5. Really impressive. So um, it, it, Flash will not be nearly as important as it once was. But what I think is more important is, is this piece. It, it dramatically um, increases the importance of JavaScript within, within web pages because all of this stuff is driven by JavaScript. As far as browser support, um, looks like my font didn't come through on the on the. Windows machine, but that's fine. So you can see, so it's this last piece that I'm most interested in, database storage. Um, so this is the gears piece. This is the ability to have a full relational database offline. And you can see, so the holdouts are Internet Explorer and Firefox. They don't yet have that capability. And that's why you're not going to see um, this portion of HTML5, this offline database storage, take off until that happens. Because, of course, between IE and Firefox, you're dealing with about 80 to 90 percent of the web traffic. But we're not far off. IE has already said that they want, uh, they want HTML, uh, or they want Internet Explorer 9 to be fully HTML5 compliant. And the release date is scheduled for 2011. So that's why I say I think we're about a year away. And Firefox has said Firefox 4.0. Um, will have this capability. And the, the latest data I saw for that was November of this year. So very quickly, all major browsers are going to be um, have offline storage capabilities built directly into the browser. Uh, the iPhone already uses this today. Um, Apple is really pushing HTML5. So you will notice, you may have noticed, you have offline support for a lot of Google applications with your iPhone. Like Gmail actually can be used offline. So if you have an iPhone, go into your settings, your Safari settings. You'll notice there's a databases. And actually look at all the databases that have been created. This is HTML5 database storage. So there is uh, SQLite databases on your iPhone. And, and that's how it's being done. Um, because there is no Gears plugin for your iPhone. So that's how Google is pulling this off. You can see, you know, I've got my little uh, airplane icon just to show you that I'm offline. And here, I'm in accessing and using Gmail even though I'm offline. And uh, same thing, here's my Google Calendar. So not, not a future technology, in use today. So could I do um, client-side SQL injection with HTML5? Yeah, absolutely. Exactly the same thing I just showed you with the paymo.biz example. Um, they don't do have that same concept of a path attribute. So if there was a cross-site scripting vulnerability anywhere within the domain, I could do client-side scripting. Uh, uh, so client-side SQL injection, sorry. So think of a scenario where you have this huge, huge, uh, huge domain you know, where all kinds of user-supplied content is able to be uploaded. Um, and if there's a cross-site scripting vulnerability anywhere on that domain, then I can do client-side SQL injection. So here's just a, a demo. If you go to the webkit.org page, you want to see this in action. If you have a, uh, a uh, browser that has this, so use Safari or Opera or Chrome, the latest versions. And so you go there, and it'll build these little sticky notes, and it's storing the data offline. So if you come back to the page, you'll actually get the same sticky notes that were there when you left it. And it's storing this on a back-end database. Here is just a snapshot of the SQLite database. 
Again, a full relational database. I'm just using a, a tool called SQLite Database Browser to actually read it, but typical SQL. How would I steal data? Again, it's the same thing as that paymo.biz example, except one step easier. I have to know the name of the database, and then I have to execute my SQL. The only thing I don't have to have in here is with the paymo.biz, I had to call the actual Google API, the Gears API. Um, I don't have to do that, because now it's actually built into the browser. But if I injected this code into a page that you were on, then I could read those sticky notes. So what are other things that I could do to abuse this? You, could, you can use redirection attacks. So the browser, it will, it, it's same origin policy. So the site will only be able to retrieve data if it wrote that site. But it really is where your browser thinks it's going to. So in this case, here I'm on the webkit.org site, and I've made a couple of test notes. I've now then, you can see I'm, that's where I'm at. Now I've copied that same code, and I'm on my machine. I just have the application running on my machine. So I don't get those same two sticky notes because it's a different domain, so my browser creates brand new sticky notes. But now, I fool my browser into thinking that webkit.org is running locally by just making a change to the host file. And now, when I go to now, so now I'm actually on my local machine because this is getting redirected to my local machine. And you see my browser brings up what I had originally written at webkit.org. So you can do redirection attacks to trick the browser into thinking that it's somewhere that it's not to, uh, to get around the same origin policy. So how do I attack this? I just talked about the same origin issue. So what can I do? I can do traffic redirection attacks like I just talked about. Um, I could get you to surf through a proxy that I controlled, and then I could be injecting JavaScript into the page as it's getting returned back to your browser, and I could use that to then be reading that client-side database. So this is not, um, you know, this is not a passive attack. I'm not just sniffing the traffic that's going across the wire. I can actually inject JavaScript into the page that's being delivered to you, and I can decide what I want to steal out of that database. Um, and then cross-site scripting as is same thing as the Google Gears uh, attack, whereby if there is a cross-site scripting vulnerability on the page, game over. I can read whatever I want to from the database that's on the client side. Uh, Google is already using this. So these are um, iPhone versions of this um, because Google uses it for the iPhone. So here's uh, Google Voice. There's the full database. Gmail, there's the database. What kinds of things are they storing? Well, Gmail will store on the client side little snippets of messages. It'll store longer portions for, for a, a, a certain number of messages. Google Voice, a lot of contact information, email. So would an attacker like this stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So if there were a cross-site scripting vulnerability on either of these pages, you could tap into that. Or if I could convince you to go through a proxy that I controlled, I could be injecting JavaScript in, and I could be querying your database and stealing this information. Um, again, this is not a, a passive attack. This isn't you're just sniffing traffic going across the wire. If you can inject JavaScript either because the person's coming through a pipe that you control, or there's cross-site scripting vulnerability on the page, you can actively attack that. You can decide what uh, data that you actually want to steal. So just to wrap things up, to compare all the different technologies that I spoke about, so, hey, cookies have been around forever. They're not going away. Uh, but storage capability is really small, 4K. Then we had flash cookies, a uh, lot more powerful in terms of storage capabilities. We have 100K of data. Uh, it's nearly universal because everybody has Flash installed, thanks to YouTube. But now we have Gears as an interim measure and HTML5, and that's really where the future lies. There really is no storage limit for these things. It's a full relational database, so a, a, an application can store whatever they want. Um, and even though HTML5, I, I say it's beta only, although that's not even entirely true, because especially now we have these iPhone sites that are actually using it, give it a year. Um, and we're going to see a lot of sites using this. As soon as we see Internet Explorer and Firefox adopt offline storage capabilities in HTML5, it's going to take off. So how does this change the game for attackers? Now they can do client-side attacks. They can steal data. So the playing field is very different. You know, it's not everybody's data stored on one server. Now there's data all over the place. It's stored on the client side. 
and it is attackable. And this is really one of the things that I think is the future for malware, web-based worms. We've already seen this stuff. Uh, a lot of the social networking sites have suffered from web-based worms. They're driven by cross-site scripting vulnerabilities in uh, social networking applications. The limitation of a web-based worm, so a traditional worm hops from desktop to de desktop. Web-based worm hops from profile to profile within an application. So it has a limitation. It can only live within that ecosystem. But when that ecosystem is 400 million users for a popular social networking site, not much of a limitation. We've already seen web-based worms, but client-side storage will really make them more powerful because now the worms will have a degree of persistency because they can live within all of the browsers that are coming to visit the page much harder for the domains to actually get rid of these things. Uh, just my predictions. I think you're going to see gears fade off. And within the next 12 months, all those sites that we're using Gears are going to switch over to HTML5. And then we're going to see websites that are offline capable really skyrocket uh, because all browsers will be able to do it. Will we see vulnerable sites? Yeah, we already, cross-site scripting is everywhere. So now it's much more powerful. Now I can use it to, to attack data on the client side. And that's it. So any, uh, I think I've got a couple minutes maybe. I think I came pretty tight there. Any questions that I can answer for everyone, anyone with any of this stuff? It can be about anything you like. It can be about uh, my engagement four years ago. It can be about uh, my trip. Everyone's still a little, uh, little hurting from last night. Oh, I got one right over here. Yes, please do. Far you away. seem desperate to get a question. Um, yes. <laughs> so tell us about your engagement four years ago. No, no. Um, you, you said earlier in the talk you were talking about um, the possibility of stealing um, SWF cookies. Yeah. Um, would you be able to do it um, if, uh, if there was an XSS using um, uh, an SWF injected through the data protocol through an XSS? So, like, you mean if, like, so sometimes you have flash files that have cross-site scripting vulnerabilities within them, is that what no, you're saying? No, that were being served by a web page that was on a domain that had. So I would, the limitation is I would have to be able to push my own SWF file up to the Yeah, up yeah to but, the site. But, if, but you can do that, my question is, can you do that through the data protocol, which you'd inject through an XSS, so it would look like it was some, coming from the same domain. I don't know. I'm asking. As Does long the, as I could get an SWF onto the same domain, then I could pull it off, yeah. Yeah, I understand that. My question is, does the browser think that something's served using the data protocol within the page, which you got there through an XSS? What do you mean the data protocol? Thank you. There's your answer. Thanks. Anything else that I can answer? All right. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed another year at OzCert. <laughs>